Live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. And welcome back to History for the Curious, the podcast. Thank you very much again, Rabbi Hirsch, for taking off your valuable time to do this. This is episode two of four in Scandals in Anglo Jewry, and today's title is The Cheyram, which means an excommunication. Now, I found the title that you chose very intriguing because the Cheyram almost suggests that there was only one Cheyram in history. Yes and no. The second settlement of the Jews in England starts, well, I mean, it really starts in the 1650s with around 100 Jews, all of whom are Svardi, one shul, one cemetery. But by 1690, the Ashkenazim have opened their own shul, have their own community, with all the main congregants coming from Hamburg. And its constitution was that it was to follow the tradition of the Ashkenazi congregation in Hamburg. This is therefore what could be termed the earliest Minhag Anglia after the resettlement. Now, this community was not as homogenous or as united as the Svardi one, but it had one thing in common, and that is a very small group of wealthy people at the top controlled the board, and they would employ the rabbi and help fund the communal institutions. Um, Well, surely nothing's changed then. Well, the difference being that there wasn't a middle layer of wealth as there is Mm. today and therefore with so much power concentrated in few hands problems would arise when within this small group there is a falling out there's a machlekes and in 1704 two groups came to become uh, each independent of each other although they were part of the same Ashkenazi community. One was made up of Moses Hart. He was the person with the wealth. His brother, Rabbi Aaron Hart, was the rabbi. And there was a Gabbai, Reb Aberla, who was a diamond merchant. The other group had as their person with wealth, Mordechai Hamburger. His children's Rebbe was a scholar by the name of Rabbi Yochanan as well as Mordechai Hamlin, who was a son of the famous woman, the diarist Gluckel von Hamlin, and he in turn was a brother-in-law of this wealthy Mordechai Hamburger. Now, at one stage in 1704, Hamburger is hailed before the non-Jewish court of Alderman in London by the lay leaders of both the Ashkenazi and Svardi communities, and ordered to stop any construction of a well what would actually be a second Ashkenazi shawl there was only one now his goal was not the building of a shawl but a klaus which is a study house a place where there would be more learning of Torah but obviously once you have this place built, it would have inevitably led to a minion. And Rabbi Hart took exception to it. 
However, the lay leaders didn't have the authority to close it down. They didn't have the right. So they went to the local courts and won. But it wasn't just study that Mordechai Hamburger wanted to improve or change. He and the Rebbe of his children both felt that there was a religious decline in London, especially in the area of Kashrus. And given that the congregation, the Ashkenazi congregation, had bound itself by the uh, customs and laws of Hamburg, who were meticulous in matters of kashras, he felt it was very remiss. In fact, Rabbi Yechanan refused to eat in any Jewish house in London because he considered their cooking utensils to be uh, treif. And he criticized Rabbi Abarla for not doing likewise. Uh, because Rabbi Abarla had smicha. And more than that, Rabbi Abarla ended up being seen drinking in a coffee house on the fast of Esther. And this bad example led others to do the same um, on the following fast day of the 17th of Tammuz. And that's how the cherem came about? Uh, no, actually not. That was what created the split the cherem was an issue in its own right. About a month before Rosh Hashanah in 1705, two brothers come to see Rabbi Hart, brothers by the name of Beryl and Unshal Katz. And they ask the rabbi to write a conditional bill of divorce, get, for Unshal's wife. Unshal was a gambler, heavily in debt, and as a result, in danger of arrest, which, if it took place, would leave him little chance of ever being released. And since they couldn't pay off his debts, Unshul had decided to emigrate to the West Indies to escape his creditors. He was worried that he would never make it back to England, wouldn't be allowed back in. And so he wanted the rabbi to write a conditional get in secrecy, which meant that if he would not return by a certain date, his wife would be free to remarry and would not become an aguna, in the real meaning of the word, as opposed to the political sense that it is often used nowadays. And the rabbi agreed. He needed a, a sofer, a scribe, to write this bill of divorce. So he suggested Aaron of Dublin, who lived in London at the time, but the brothers were reluctant because the gambling brother Unchel had won a large sum of money at cards from the scribe's son-in-law, and they didn't therefore know if they could trust the scribe. So they suggested using the Svardi Sefer, but this would mean that more people would find out about the issue because, you know, you've got a scribe of your own, why are you coming to us? Nevertheless, this was the plan they hatched. The rabbi gathered up a number of people to be present at the divorce ceremony, witnesses, etc. Uh, the problem was that the brothers didn't actually turn up. So everyone goes back home, but Anshul Katz's secret now becomes common knowledge and common gossip. Mm. They had to come back again, and the conditional bill of divorce was then written, signed, presented, as uh, should be the case. However... The however is that when the previous rabbi of the Ashkenazi community had left for Rotterdam, Rabbi Hart had been made to give an undertaking not to accept the office of the rabbinate for another three years 
because he did not yet know enough to become a communal rabbi. As a consequence, Mordechai Hamburger had little respect for Rabbi Hart as a scholar. And when he heard that Rabbi Hart had arranged a very complex document, a conditional divorce document, Hamburger publicly said that Rabbi Hart was incapable of writing it and the document was worthless. So uh, clearly the Katz family, the brothers and the rabbi were not um, best pleased hmm. by these uh, remarks. And the rabbi warned Hamburger that if he persisted in his slander, he would be placed in Cherem. And Mordechai Hamburger took no notice. So Rabbi Hart convened a Bezdin, which he himself presided over. They examined witnesses and wrote down their evidence. Hamburger was invited to attend, but he didn't. The witnesses said that Mordechai Hamburger had declared on a number of occasions that Rabbi Hart was incapable of arranging a valid divorce under these circumstances. And they testified further that he'd been warned that he would be subjected to the cherem of Rabbeinu Tam if he continued to make these slanderous remarks. Just to clarify, what's the difference between the cherem of Rabbeinu Tam and a cherem that we might hear today? There are two differences. One is that Rabbeinu Tam's cherem is irrevocable, and one is that the level of it is particularly harsh. Mm. And that meant you weren't simply doing what was often the case in Europe, placing somebody outside of the community for a month. What you were essentially doing is visiting on him a sentence that would remain with him until the grave. Mm. So it, it, it's particularly harsh and has probably never actually been used. So this Bezdin hears the evidence, and as a result, they put him under this ban. But it was so strong, so harsh, that the people who heard about it felt that this was going too far. To give you an example, after he's put in Cherem, which is obviously in the run-up to Rosh Hashanah, he is not called up to the Torah during the Yom Neroim, during Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. He wasn't allowed to have his newly born daughter named in Shul. The poor people who would normally go to his house for charity were instructed that they were forbidden from doing so. And then over Sukkot, so uh, interestingly, there were unfavorable winds. The weather was bad. And all the Esregim that the Ashkenazi community had ordered did not arrive in time for Yontif. So they had to ask the Svardi community for one Esreg. There was only one communal Esreg. And of course, he was refused the use of it. So this ban starts to bite He's very upset, as one can imagine, and he went to Rabbi Hart to beg him to remove the ban. He offered to retract what he had said in public and to pay a fine of £500 if he was forgiven. 
And at this stage, the, the two versions of the story have different reasons as to why that did not take place. According to one version, the rabbi was willing, but Reb Aberla prevented him from doing so. And the other version said that simply the rabbi felt he had no power to revoke the harem of Rabbeinu Tam during Mordechai Hamburger's lifetime. And that meant that there was no going back from this. So, at this stage, Hamburger and his friends reach out to Rabonim across Europe. They set out the facts of the case. They include all the testimony that Rabbi Hart had put together during the Bezdin that he had subsequently convened, and they sent them out in order to get a ruling. Just by the way, offering £500 as an atonement, I mean, in today's money, that is at least £50,000, perhaps even another zero on that. So we're talking a substantial offer on the table and an offer to retract publicly, he had said. So the response of the answers arrived during Sukkot, and all of them annulled the cherem. However, Rabbi Hart and his advisors let it be known that these responses were irrelevant because they hadn't been consulted and therefore they weren't interested, even though the response came from acknowledged experts in halacha, in the field uh, specifically of Gittin as well as generally. Now, the reasons given by the rabbis to annul it varied. Some disputed the process of how and why it was done, and others questioned the halachic element. So, for instance, you have the uh, rabbi of Amsterdam, Rebleib Harif, wrote that the Tcherem of Rabbeinu Tam only applies in a case where a divorce or the validity of a divorce is being challenged after the woman has remarried and has children through her second marriage, at which point you're now casting doubt on the legitimacy of the children, which is a parallel in many ways to the opinion of the Ramah in similar scenarios, um, meaning that a person who believes a divorce to be invalid and voices his opinion at the time that the get is given so that the matter can be put right, is doing his duty. He can't be put in cherem. Halacha has to be subject to clarification. And you have a, a similar response from the Maram of Lublin in the name of the Levush, that the cherem of Rabbeinu Tam applies only to a person who was present when the divorce was executed and who believes it to have been done improperly and stays silent until there is a remarriage. And therefore, they believed that the cherem was simply inapplicable under these circumstances. Beyond that, because it was a conditional divorce, it could not be considered as having taken place until the conditions upon which it depended had occurred. In other words, until Uncle Katz 
decides that he's unable to return to England a number of years down the line from now. So the argument could very strongly be made that no aspersions have been cast on an actual get. It is a get in theory and in fact might never be used. So he advised that instead of the harem, Hamburger should publicly apologize, pay a sum of money to charity and fast for one day. That was his advice. The next truva, which is actually printed in the sponsor of the Chacham Tzvi, came from an outstanding authority. The Chacham Tzvi, born in Moravia, had studied under Svardi rabbis in Salonika, had occupied the post of Chacham in Sarajevo, and was now a rabbi in Altona, a rabbi of Ashkenazim. So he was respected by Ashkenazim and Svardim alike. And in 1704, the community of Svardim in London had turned to him when their Chacham, David Nieto, was accused of heresy by some of his congregants. Do we know why? It was to do with a Spinozan accusation, whether... In fact, the Chacham Nieto was saying that the physical world was the sum total of HaKadosh Baruch I mean, both of these, both the Truva that Chacham Tzvi wrote with regards to this Cherem Rebbeinu Tam and the Truva with regards to Chacham Nieto are both in his collection of responsa. Mm. And the Chacham Tzvi actually was on good terms with the various parties. So, you know, he was an unbiased opinion and somebody who brought great gravitas to the argument. He gave four reasons for invalidating the harem, two of which deal with the process itself. Firstly, he said that the testimony against Hamburger in this convened Besdin was heard in the absence of Hamburger himself. So it can't be used. You're accepting testimony when the baldin, when the person involved, is not present. Another reason he gave was that Rabbi Hart presided over this bezdin, but he is not unbiased. He's part of the dispute, and therefore he's disqualified from examining witnesses impartially, mm. and therefore his, his evidence is inadmissible. So I guess all these Rabbonim that you mentioned, they brought this whole controversial time to an end. Not at all. No, no, not at all. <laughs> Nothing is that simple. Nothing at all, no. That's why the term scandal is applied to it. <laughs> no, Rabbi Hart, probably possibly urged on by Reb Aberla, refused to release Mordechai Hamburger from Cherem despite all the response uh, being written to the contrary. So uh, Mordechai Hamburger simply founded his own shul. He had the means. In his own home in 1707, this became known as the Hambro Synagogue, and he eventually built a synagogue on Fenchurch Street around 1726. Are there any remains to that shul? No, there's a plaque. Mm. It moved from there at the end of the uh, 19th century, but even certain shuls that did stand longer than that were targeted in the Blitz. In fact, the very first shul, the one that was ah. established by the first Ashkenazi community. And what Mordechai Hamburger did is he installed 
Rabbi Yochanan as the rabbi of this new congregation, and now you have two Ashkenazi communities in London. The kicker is that there is a ruling in Jewish law that somebody who imposes a cherem on another party unjustly puts themselves in cherem thereby. And that means that the members of the Hambro congregation basically saw this to be the case regarding Rabbi Hart and his supporters. So, you know, a very Jewish family fight. Although it seems that all the rabbis of the day were on Mordechai's side. Yes, right. Uh, and therefore, they would have felt that the cherem was applied unjustly. Right. There is another act to this play. A few years down the road in 1761, by which time both Rabbi Hart and his adversaries had passed away, and at which stage there are around seven to 8,000 Jews in the country, many more Ashkenazim than Svaradim. Svaradim seem to have stayed constant at around 1,000. And at that time, 1761, a group of merchants decided to open another shul. And ironically, both the great synagogue in Duke's Place, in other words, this original Ashkenazi community, and the uh, new kid on the block, the Hambro, which was by now over 50 years old, they were both unhappy by the opening of a third shul because it would signify a loss of authority and revenue. So they ordered their rabbi to refuse to officiate for members of this breakaway group. You know, it's plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose, which of course had no impact. And the new synagogue, as it became known, was born. And almost at the same time on the western border of the city, you have the Westminster Synagogue, which eventually becomes the Western Synagogue that opens as well. And that really is the beginning of communal Ashkenazi life in London during the resettlement. So we really got off on a good foot. <laughs> <laughs> well, we grew and we grew positively, Baruch Hashem. So the outcome was not necessarily bad, but the origins could have been slightly better. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess that's all we have time for today. Thank you very much again, Rabbi Hirsch, for another fascinating episode. Please join us next time, next week, same place, for episode three of Scandals in Anglo Jury. Any comments, suggestions, please email podcasts at jle.org.uk. Thank you very much for listening. Mm-hmm.